0: Starting off with this, have you ever uh, taken a road trip through Texas or any other southern state? Uh, I have. I go pretty often. My wife's from Waco, Texas, so she's got family both in Waco, and she has a uh, family in Dallas as well, so we go and see both of them. So we're in Texas quite a bit, and when you're in Texas, you're bound to see this sign. I've got it here on the next side. That is a sign for Bucky's. and if you don't know what Bucky's is, Bucky's is the greatest gas station on earth. <laughs> And I'm not exaggerating. It is a giant convenience store gas station with over 100 pumps. And these signs are scattered everywhere all throughout Texas. And I just read in the news that Arkansas is getting one, too. So uh, might be taking some road trips there. But uh, there's a stretch between Waco and Dallas because the nearest Bucky's is in Houston and the other one's in Melissa, Texas, like over 100 miles away. And this sign or signs like it would be scattered just barely a mile apart over and over and over again. It's repetitive. Sometimes they're kind of annoying, but they have like these catchy little things or, you know, stop here for good Texas brisket or something like that. And so we're not unfamiliar with signs and they have a purpose, right? These signs for Bucky's, they make you think of this gas station that's to come. And whenever you see these signs, it makes you go, well, I have a bucky to look forward to. Why would I stop at this random gas station? At least that's what it does to my family. My kids love going. And so as we begin John chapter two, what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be seeing different signs that John gives us to the cross. These miracles and these things that Jesus do that point to his power and his goodness and his future death on the cross and as signs and billboards are meant to point us to something different or something better that's to come the signs that we will begin with this morning are meant to do the same and it's much better than any gas station with good texas brisket and this first sign that we're going to look at is a very well-known sign of Jesus turning water into wine. And it's one of the most well-known of Jesus' signs. And there's honestly more significance to this sign than maybe meets the eye. And so the title for today's message is The Power and Goodness of Jesus. Because through this miracle, through this sign, we see the power of Jesus and his goodness on full display. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John 2, 1-12. We'll read this together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to him, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew the the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. We pray with me? Father, we just thank you for this morning in allowing us to gather and worship you freely. Father, we pray as we look at the first of Jesus' signs recorded to us in John's Gospel. God, I pray that, that you would help us to see and understand Jesus' goodness and his glory in this miracle. God, I pray that we wouldn't take lightly the things that Jesus does, but God, that we would see the intent and purpose for them. Father, that although Jesus did a lot of other things, God, to point to you and to point to the cross, God, I pray that we would recognize you in this. And, Father, I pray this morning that we would be rid of distraction, God, as, as you prepare our hearts to receive your word. And, God, that you would help us to learn what your word is teaching us. And, God, that we would act in accordance to it. Father, I pray uh, this morning for, for all in this room, Father, who, who may be struggling with things. And, God, who may be feeling hopeless this morning. God, I pray that you would give them comfort God, I pray that you would help them to see your goodness and your glory. God, I pray that they would find strength in you. And God, I pray that if anyone in this room doesn't know you, God, and doesn't trust in you, Father, that that this morning that they would hear about your goodness. And God, they would receive you. So, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So this morning, as we, as we study this text, I want us to set the stage a little bit. Um, and what I want us to do is I really want us to answer two questions. Anytime that you are studying scripture and you are looking at God's word and seeking to understand what God's word is teaching us, there, there are two things that, that I always try to ask myself when I'm reading God's word in, in any passage of scripture. We know that, that all scripture is God breathed profitable for teaching rebuking, and training in righteousness. And so the first question I ask is, what is God teaching us? Anytime we read a passage, we want to answer that question. What is God teaching us in this passage? And the next question is, what are we going to do about it? So the first question is, what is God teaching us? The second is, what are we going to do about it? And as we seek to answer these questions, we also need to understand some of the historical context as to weddings to understand really what's going on, because we read this, and there are certain things that we see that we're just like, well, that's not really a big deal because we we have in our, in our Western culture what, what a wedding is and running out of food or running out of beverages isn't, isn't a big deal. But we have to understand a few things about weddings here at this time. So first, you know, we see that Jesus and the disciples are going to a wedding and we can safely presume that this wedding had to have had people that they knew in some close association because Jesus and his mother was there. And so they were invited and they were a part of it and the thing you have to understand about weddings back in this time is weddings and hospitality, especially hospitality, was a really big deal. You know, nowadays with weddings, sometimes they're thrown together or sometimes they're these elaborate celebrations that don't last very long. But back then, a lot of your, your, your stake and honor was held on how well you showed hospitality towards others, especially with a wedding. And if you didn't meet expectations or you didn't provide enough to, to feed everybody or to uh, give enough drinks to everybody, you could actually be sued <laughs> uh, for not being able to meet those provisions back then. And wedding feasts would sometimes last for over a week. And so in this wedding at the time, also the bridegroom was the one responsi- responsible for the hospitality. It was not the parents of the bride as it is now. And so with all that in mind, what is this passage Teaching us, What is God teaching us from this? Well, the first thing I believe that God is teaching us is that God's timing is not always our own. God's timing is not always our own. Look with me to verse three. Verse three, the mother of Jesus, Mary, presents a problem to Jesus. She says they ran out of wine. Now, normally this isn't a big deal. Uh, I know that at mine and Victoria's wedding, we had bottled Dr. Pepper, and it, it wasn't a big deal we ran out of that because we had sweet tea from Chick-fil-A. We very specifically, because we were in Waco, Texas, had Dr. Pepper because it's the home of Dr. Pepper, and we had sweet tea from Chick-fil-A. So that was kind of my, my, my love for that. However, this was a big deal. Being uh, unable to be hospitable towards wedding guests was not good, if you remember from what we talked about earlier. So Mary, knowing who Jesus is, asked him for help. Now, when Jesus responds, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And we read that and we go, man, Jesus, don't talk to your mama like that. But we have to understand, this phrase isn't the the same that we think of now, right? Like if you were to say this to your mom, it would be a little rude. But the way that Jesus phrases this and the way this word was used, it was more like saying the word ma'am. It was more of a respectful title indication like you know jesus was more saying you know ma'am what is this what does this have to do with me what is this problem what is going on what what do i how am i involved in this and he almost gives this gentle rebuke to his mom when he says the hour has not yet come so what is he referring to so this hour refers to the hour that he would be killed for our sins and when we read John further on, we see this hour being referred to that Jesus keeps alluding to that this hour is coming where the Son of Man will be given for the sins of the world. And So essentially, he's, he's in a very gentle way rebuking his mother for trying to rush what God is doing and the timing in which Jesus would begin the journey to the cross. Because when we, when we know this, once Jesus begins the signs that point to something much greater, there's no going back. And you know, I think that we often do the same thing to God that Mary did to Jesus. See, we know God is capable of all things. We may believe that he, he, we may believe he has us going in a specific trajectory, but we often ask God, why not now? We try to rush God. We are impatient. We believe that we know what timeline is best in our lives. Right? We make these plans. We have these desires. And when God doesn't meet our timing and what we want It upsets us. And we ask, why, God, have you not moved in this way? Why have you not done this now? Why are you not moving now? But God's timing is always better than our own. And I think about, even in my own life, how I became your pastor. Last year, around this time, I had transitioned from being the youth pastor at Ridgeview to being a church member at UBC. And during that time, uh, I was working to do my last semester in seminary, and I had these exuberant number of counseling hours I had to get done by the end of the semester. And it was a lot on our family. We had just had our daughter, and uh, so we joined this church, and I still felt led to pursue pastoral ministry. And I really felt like, okay, the first opportunity I get, I'm going to jump on it and start applying. And I felt like that's what God was leading me to do. But then... We prayed through it and we just felt like at this time, the Lord brought us to where we were for a reason and we needed to stay where we were. And it was really hard because we had decided that and we had kind of come to peace with that. And then I found out that that Greenland was looking for a pastor. And I was talking to one of the guys that I would consider a mentor of mine at UBC and uh, we were talking about another situation. He said, I think outside of EPC Greenland, I wouldn't consider any other churches right now. And then not a week later, I found out that this church was looking for a pastor. And so I give him a call and I said, hey, <laughs> so it happened. And we prayed about it and we prayed about it and really wrestled with the Lord on what we would do. And we just felt like it was not the time for us to move forward. And, and, and church, that was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made was to, to stay where I was. Because I still felt like I was being obedient in terms of doing pastoral ministry. I was counseling, but we and our family were not in a season where it was time for us to move forward. And so I finished seminary. And God continued to weigh Greenland down heavily on my heart. And I'm victorious. And we got to the point to where we decided and we felt the Lord leading us to, to pursue Greenland. And we did. And then sure enough, here I am. But can I tell you something, church? In my ideal timing world, you know, I would have just immediately jumped on the opportunity. But the year that we spent as church members, the year that we spent finishing seminary, the year that we, I spent counseling, the year that we spent learning how to be a family with three young children, the year that we spent that honestly was pretty hard for teaching at, uh, for Victoria. God did so much in that year. And, and the things that we learned, I don't think we could have learned any other way. And so I'm grateful that God led us to hold off a little bit. And I believe that our family is in a better position, and I'm in a better position to pastor this church because of it, because of the friendships we made, because of the, the things that I learned about pastoring and pastoring well, and the intentionality that we had with that last year. And so church... If you have things in your own life that maybe you wonder why God is making you wait, just remember, God uses times where we seem still to transform us and to grow us. There was a time, again, here at FPC Greenland when uh, a youth pastor position came open and I applied, and Eric called me and said, Hey, not yet. And at the time, I didn't understand. But as I grew up, I began to really understand why he had me wait. Because I wasn't ready. And God used that time and waiting to mature me, to grow me. And then I eventually did become the youth pastor here and did youth ministry here. Church, trust God in the timing of of his timing in your life. We need to learn to trust God and trust his timing in our lives. We only see a microscopic part of the picture of our lives, whereas God sees the entire thing. We need to learn to trust him. And so what happens in this passage? Well, in this passage, Mary still tells him or tells the servants, do, what he, do whatever he tells you. She still believes that Jesus is going to do something. right? We know that Jesus wants to honor his, his mother as well. And so what happens next? What else are we to learn from this passage? Well, the next thing that we are to, we are to learn is that Jesus is the new purifier. Jesus is the new purifier. Verses 6 through 8 says this. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. I want you to stop here for a second. Whenever I would study God's word, we used to do this note-taking process with some guys at the BCM called The Key. Not gonna walk through the whole thing with you, but one of the things we would do is we would choose a key verse. This is a verse that we felt encapsulated the passage best, one that just resonated with us the most. And as I read this text, I've read this this text before, but reading it again and again and again, there's a new verse that pops out to me that I believe is one of the most significant verses in this passage, and it's this one right here. Verse six, talking about the rites of purification and how much liquid they held. Now, you may be asking the question, what does that have to do with anything? I'll tell you here in a minute. We have to understand this. One, that these jars held in total 180 gallons of liquid. That's a lot. He tells them to take some and give it to the master of the feast. So what is significant about this? Why did I tell you to remember that? Well, the first is we have to understand purification rites was an Old Testament tradition of cleansing. Uh, People would often become ceremoniously unclean by coming into contact with impure items or people. So before eating, what they would do is they would pour water over their hands to cleanse themselves from whatever may have defiled them. Now, here's what Jesus does. Jesus turns that water into wine, but not just any wine. As we read later, he turned it into something good. Wine of that amount, I remember 180 gallons, and that flavor, as he calls it the good wine, would have taken years. Jesus did it in a matter of seconds. And this is what I love, and this is why this is my favorite verse from this passage here. This is a picture of the kind of cleansing that people used to have to go through to become clean. They'd have to wash their hands and wash their, their, their face and, and as they came into contact with things that were unclean. But what did Jesus do to those who were unclean? Jesus provides something better. He turned that water into wine. Jesus became the new purifier. And a purification that he paid for with his blood. This is an image of how Jesus came to make a new and much better way for us to be cleansed. That we don't have to wash our hands anymore because when we are washed with the blood of the Lamb, we are washed forever, once and for all. Jesus made a better way. And this way is permanent. And this way is good. And it can't be recreated by man. And it's not something that we can earn for ourselves, but it's something that God gives to us freely in his goodness and his love. And so do we learn from this. We learn that Jesus is the one who purifies us. And it's through him and his power that we have cleansing and redemption. Praise God that we don't need purification rites anymore for those who belong to him. And so what, what do we learn? What's the last thing we can learn from this passage? The last thing I believe we can learn is that God's gifts are good and plentiful. Verses 9 through 10 reads this. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, it did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And then we read, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee. And manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him we understand that, that Jesus didn't just turn water into wine. He turned it into something extraordinary. And not only that, but just like what Jesus does all throughout the New Testament, is he flips tradition on its head. So in normal tradition, at these weddings, the good wine would be served first, and then they'd save the bad stuff for later. They just felt like no one would really notice at that point. But here is what he does, is he saves the best for last, flips it over his head, and it's one of the best things that this... this uh, the master of feasts ever tasted. He literally calls out the bridegroom to tell him that. How honoring and how amazing is that? And so we understand God's gifts to us are good and generous and of great abundance. Jesus didn't have to do it in that capacity, but he chose to. Why? Because God's gifts are good and gracious and plentiful. And like many of God's gifts, we are meant to enjoy them in the way God intended and within our own convictions. When I think about the way that we use God's gifts, I think about manna in Exodus 16. If you remember in Exodus 16, this is shortly after the Israelites uh, left Egypt. They left slavery. And uh, as we know, the Israelites do all throughout Exodus, they complain a lot. (laughs) And so in that, what God does is he provides for them nourishment. He provides for them food. He gives them manna for his people to eat. And he gives them enough for them to eat and have their fill. And he gave them specific instruction on how it should be used and not used. But what happened? The people disobeyed and it rotted. The people disobeyed. God gave them a wonderful and abundant gift of manna, but yet the people squandered it. And when they misused it, it rotted and became something that God had never intended it to be. And with many of God's gifts, they are good, but sometimes I think that we abuse or even take for granted the wonderful gifts that God has given us. We must learn to guard ourselves from doing so and be thankful to the things God gives us and entrusts to us. Not only are God's gifts enough, but His provision is also enough and His gifts are good. See, church, I I believe that when we look at this passage, I think we forget how much god does for us i think that we are in our world today are very comfortable and we seemingly earn everything that we get and we believe that we are deserving of it but see we were never deserving or could earn god's love for us because see in the beginning we we sinned against god he asked us to do one thing and we broke that of him And then because of that, we became separated from God, unable to be reconciled on our own. And all throughout the course of human history, we continued to try to mend that relationship with God on our own. People tried to be righteous on their own, but they never could. People tried to do everything that God told them to do, but their hearts were still broken and wicked. We talk about the Pharisees, for example. The Pharisees did everything outwardly right. They gave money, they gave their time, they memorized the old testament they 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 held highly the laws of the old old testament but their hearts were still broken and when we read all throughout the new testament our old testament god gives these wonderful gifts to his people but yet they continue to squander them like for example we look at the manna the manna wasn't the only time that this happened right? think about think about when they complained about the manna we're tired of this bread that god gave us we want meat We had it better in Egypt when we were in slavery. But that's not true. And so God gave them enough quail to make them sick. We talk about Moses. Whenever his people were thirsty, Moses took matters, matters into his own hands and broke the rock. We can become impatient. We can sometimes destroy and manipulate God's gifts. I think about God's gift of intimacy between a husband and wife how in our world that has become completely distorted. Where it's almost become transactional with some people rather than what God had designed it to be. But God's gifts are not a bad thing. They're good. But they're meant to be enjoyed in the way that God intended and that's the way that they are are enjoyed best. So God may be blessing you with an abundance of gifts and trusting you with things. Guys, don't Don't squander those gifts. Don't squander your talent and ability for just personal gain, but use those things for God's kingdom and his glory. Learn to trust God and his timing with your lives and and rejoice in the fact that God loves you and I enough to give us his one and only son. Jesus is the ultimate gift that we didn't have to earn, earn, that we didn't have to work for, but God gave him to us freely. And for all that would trust in him and believe in him, they can have everlasting life and an eternal gift with him forever. So let me end with this. Verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus didn't just say he was the son of man. He didn't just talk the talk. Jesus walked the walk. His actions reflected who he was. This sign pointed to him being the Christ and pointed to the glory of God, but this is just the beginning. Church, the signs that Jesus will show changes the world and changes you and me. So as we have this time of invitation, I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing. And at this time... This, this is a, a time for you to respond to the text. To ask the question of, do you truly believe? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he was? Do you believe that God is good? Do you put your trust and your faith in him? Or are you still relying on your own abilities? Because listen, church, there's no amount of money. There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of anything that you can do to earn your salvation. The Bible teaches that good works are like filthy rags to God. We're so called to do good things, but we're called to do them out of, the, out of the manifestation of the Spirit in us, not to do them just to earn His favor. His love is unconditional, and it's open for you and for me. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your love. God, I thank you for your wonderful and gracious gifts. God, that you always go above and beyond to provide for us. And God, in this this miracle, God, of your son turning water into wine, Father, we see this imagery that Jesus is the new purifier. God, that through him we have cleansing. Through him we have forgiveness of sins. Through him we are reconciled with you. Through him we have eternal life. Through him, we are transformed. Through him, we are made new people. And through him, we never have to be cleansed again. God, I pray that we would trust that. God, I pray that we would understand that. God, I pray for anyone, anyone in this room, Father, that, that is lost in their sin. God, that, that loves more of what the world is doing in them more than you. God, I pray that you would correct that in them. God, I pray that in their hearts, Father, that they would turn away from those things and those desires and turn to you. God, who loves us, who gives gifts in abundance, who is good through and through, and God, who showed your power first at the most unlikely of places at a wedding. God, in a place of hospitality. God, you are hospitable, you are good. You love us unconditionally. And God, I pray for everyone in this room, Father, that, that doesn't know you, God, that they would put their trust and faith in you. God, that they would turn from their sin and God turn from the things Father this world tells them is enough, Father, and they would lean on you. God, who is better than everything else that we could fill our lives with? God, I pray that they would know your joy and your peace and the freedom from being in a relationship with you. And God, I pray for anyone in this room who does know you, God, that they would be encouraged. Father, that this same Jesus, who could turn that much water into fantastic wine, God, can transform our broken hearts into something new. Who could make us into a new person. Who could help us to love in a way that is godly. And God, who can transform us from the inside out. Father, I pray for anyone hurting this morning, God, that just needs prayer. God, I pray that you would help them to know that you are with them and that you love them. And God, I pray that if anyone feels led to join the church, God, and to be a part of this body, Father, I pray that they would, they would come forward. So, Father, we pray for this time of invitation. It's your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen.